All right. Well, let me start. Um, it's great to have you, Debbie. But you were, you're a Yorkshire lass, aren't you? I know you don't live in Yorkshire these days, but you were brought up in Yorkshire. Yeah, and my family still live in Yorkshire, so it's still it's still really my home. That's where my heart is. Now you're an, an Olympic rower, but I know the Yorkshire rivers. They're not particularly suited for rowing, are they? Not really. They're they they're kind of like rivers that, that are rapids and bends, and there are a few bits that you can row on, but there's not so many, not too many. So how do you, how did you get into rowing? Well, I absolutely loved sport growing up and tried lots of different sports at school. Uh, but actually, we found rowing because of the rowing machine. We used the rowing machine as part of my general fitness when I did judo. So I was in the British junior judo team. And, yeah, the rowing machine was an um, amazing piece of machinery that works every part of your body. Um, anyone who, who uses the rowing machines will, will know their torture machines as well. But basically, someone came up to me in the gym and said, oh, are you a rower? And I kind of said, no, what's that? You know, I'd never seen it on the television. I didn't even know it was an Olympic sport. Um, my school didn't row. I'd never been in a paddle boat. But they just said, look, you're doing really good times on the rowing machine. And so I thought I'd give it a go. You know, I loved sport. The Olympics was always my dream. Uh, I was trying to find that sport that I was good at. But I, I, I know from your story, one of the coaches was not particularly encouraging. I don't think he felt you were that brilliant, did he? No. And to be fair, I was not very good at all to start with. Um, I pretty much spent most of my time swimming because I fell in so much. And I I was really keen. So I was doing my A-levels at the time. I was 17 uh, and I was going down to the rowing club around all my studies, you know, when I when I finished school and in any spare time. And I think he was trying to help me. And he, he kind of said to me, look, Debbie, um, you know, you're, you're not going to be much more than an average club rower. You just need to chill out, basically. And, you know, just just concentrate on school and don't worry too much about rowing. And oh, I was gutted, gutted. That was going to be, you know, maybe this was going to be my sport. The Olympics was my absolute dream. OK, now, clearly somebody did spot you and did suggest, hey, we need to put you in for proper training let let's see what what can happen how, how did that happen well i went on a rowing course where they they teach you a few more skills and give you some more opportunities to go in boats and there was a, a guy called alec hodges who was like a real old old boy of the club and he absolutely loved teaching people he loved rowing and he just saw something and said no i'm going to help you he drove a boat from london to yorkshire for me so that i could have my own boat and learn to row and then he also introduced me to uh, a guy called Mark Banks, who was the chief junior coach of British rowing at the time. And yeah, so he introduced me to him, which and he was the perfect person for me to meet, really, because the thing that I needed was the technical help. Like I already had the fitness. I already had the strength because I had done sport all my life. But rowing is a really technical sport. And I had no clue. Like I was so untechnical. I was just terrible at the technical side. And of course, you can't go fast without being efficient. So I got introduced to Mark Banks. And again, that's another story in itself, which we haven't got time for tonight. But, you know, he shouldn't have come to see me. I was a, a nobody, really. I, I'd not rowed really before that much. Um, and he was the chief junior coach. He only would normally look after the top people in the country. Uh, but he decided to take me on. And it really all started from there. Mm. And And when you were, you know, training for the olympics and i want to talk through if uh, if 
Tony doesn't come back, but I'll talk through the various Olympic Games. But when you were training, what sort of regime did you follow? How many hours a day were you practicing? How much were you eating, and etc.? What was your life like? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty full-on schedule. Rowers, in a sense, have a really a real reputation for being early morning um, a sport. But for us, because we had all day, because we were full-time athletes, it wasn't early, early. I mean, we'd be in the gym at seven o'clock in the morning being briefed and then we go out on the water at half past seven. Uh, we'd do a training session. We'd come back, have second breakfast. And how long did a session last? How long did the training session? A training session would be between 90 and 100 minutes. Um, so then we'd have a short break, do a second session before lunch, have lunch, and then you could have a little break and usually do a gym session either on the, on the rowing machine or uh, doing weight training, depending on what was on the, the schedule that was preset for us. And, you know, no lions, no weekends. This was pretty much seven days a week. We got the occasional day off. You know, we got the day off after we've raced and you get the occasional rest day. Uh, but it's pretty full on. It's uh, all year round and you commit to four years, really. It's not it's not just you know a couple of months before the Olympics. It's a four year cycle that we commit to. So you're pretty tired most of the time. <laughs> I'm sure you are. Are, we, are you allowed to eat as much as you want or is it strict? Yeah, controlled? I mean, again, common question we would get asked, you know, do you have to be really careful what you eat? And because of the amount of training we do, actually, you just have to eat a lot. Obviously, a balanced diet. But, you know, I would eat five to six thousand calories a day when I was rowing. And you'd be drinking eight to ten litres of fluid because you're sweating it out or you might be training in a hot country. So you have to be really, yeah, really on top of what you're eating, but just lots of it, which is really important. Amazing. And and before we come on to the Olympics, but some considerable success in the Commonwealth Games and the World World Championships. Just tell us about those. Have have a moment to boast. <laughs> uh, it's been a wonderful time. I mean, I absolutely loved my time in the rowing team. I was in the, the GB team for 15 years. So over the course of four Olympic Games, uh, I started in the junior British team, so we got a bronze medal, which was my first year in the junior team. Uh, moving on to under 23, so one under 23s gold medals in my single and in a double. Uh, and then on to seniors, I was a spare at the Sydney Olympics. Um, and then I went on to Athens and Beijing and won a silver medal in both of those games. And uh, on to London as well, which was an amazing time. Uh, again, Commonwealth Regatta, um, World Championships. It's uh, it was a, a pretty amazing time. OK, well, I'm going to come back to those now. Um, Debbie, you you were brought up in a Christian home, weren't you? I was. Yes. So was it just natural that you would sort of follow your parents, your grandparents faith even? Well, so I guess if you'd have asked me that question when I was in my younger teens, um, if you'd have said, are you are you a Christian? Do you believe in God? I would have said yes, but I think I would have said that because it was just an automatic response. You know, for me, going to church was something we did every week. Um, it was part of my life. And I thought that by going to church and by being in a Christian family, that that made you a Christian. But actually, it wasn't until I was 15 and I joined a youth group at my church and I guess started to listen a bit more. And I suddenly realized that actually being a Christian is not about your own efforts. It's not about growing up in a Christian family. Actually, it's a, a choice that each one of us have to make. And, you know, I would say even before that point, I I, I truly believe that there was a God. I mean, you know, I could never have imagined that I was just a random bag of chemicals that had no purpose and that had just come about. And 
I couldn't even that didn't resonate with me at all. You know, I, I did believe that there was a God, but I also believed that, you know, he he blesses us all with different abilities and opportunities. And I knew that one of my gifts things was, was sport, that I absolutely loved sport. And I I knew that was something that, you know, God had enabled me to do. So I was very happy to accept those gifts and to get on with life. But I wasn't interested really in acknowledging God or thanking him or giving him any any part in my life. I just wanted my life, really, and sport. And so when I was 15, I suddenly realized that actually, yes, God gives us abilities and opportunities and many blessings in this life. But actually, the first and foremost thing that he wants with us and for us is for us to have a relationship with him. And I realized that I didn't have that. And I guess that was my first step into becoming a Christian and realized that actually now I'm far from God. I'm not living my life with him or for him in any way. And our relationship is is broken. And actually, I can't get that back on my own. Uh, I needed to accept Jesus into my life because he died for me in my place. So that for me was the first step, you know, in a 15 year old's understanding, that was my first step as a Christian, accepting Jesus into my life as my as my savior and as, as as king in my life, if you like. That was a very definite moment, wasn't it, in at a youth club, I think. It was. It was. Um, the question was asked in our youth group and our youth group leader explained to us what that meant. And and just a really simple prayer to go home with saying sorry for. Um, not acknowledging God for living life without him um, and asking him, asking Jesus into our life. Just a really simple prayer. And that was really the start. And, you know, I would say that it's it's a huge, significant thing. You Before that point, I was living life on my own. And from that moment onwards, I was living life with God. And of course, like any relationship that grows and it grows. in I've grown in my understanding and in my uh, relationship with, with him as I've, as I've walked as a Christian. So how does being a Christian impact you as a as a rower? Do you I don't know. Do you pray that you'll win every race? (laughs) No, I mean, I think one of the things I'm so thankful for is that actually I became a Christian before I went into this crazy world of full time sport, because, you know, for me, I I went into my sport already thanking God for it, knowing that he'd blessed me with those opportunities and abilities. And I think. You know, for me, that made me even more motivated to do well and to to want to use my abilities and want to honour him and how I did that. So I would say for me that, you know, as a Christian, you know, Jesus is the centre of my life. It influences everything because actually life is a gift from God. And so therefore he is interested in every single thing that we do and wants us to to grow as a person, but also grow in our kind of relationship and knowing him through life as well through the ups and downs so I would definitely say that it gave me you know it gave me real motivations maybe not the right word but you know it gave me real desire to be there when it was hard and when it was tough because I knew that God had placed me on that path and I was going to continue walking on it rowing on it um until until the end of that path came and the next thing that God had planned for my life was 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 coming about so you know, through the ups and downs as well. And knowing that, you know, my security as well was in being stable and in being a child of God. 
I mean, I can explain a little bit more about that, but that was hugely significant um, in the crazy up and down world of sport. <laughs> All right. Now, you've used that phrase up and down once or twice. So you, you mm. said that at the Sydney Olympics, you were spare parts. Presumably, that was a bit of a downer, you know, four years of training and they don't even spare let you. Spare part, Roger, spare part. Oh, <laughs> spare is just not a good, it's not a good word, is it? I need to think of another word for it. But yeah, so basically, I mean, we all make life plans, don't we? And for me, I finished school when I was 18 and my life plan was to row full time for two years, go to the Sydney Olympics, tick my Olympic box dream. <laughs> And then continue on as a veterinary surgeon. And that was, you know, if, if you'd have given me any other options for my life, I could not have, I wouldn't have taken them. You know, that was my best plan. That was, that was the ultimate that I could even see for my life. And I moved away from home. I moved south because that's where you needed to be to, to train for the rowing. And I didn't make it. I came second in the race off, which meant that I didn't go. I wanted to try and go as my, as a single in, uh, to Sydney. And at that point, uh, it was probably the the lowest I'd been in my life as a 20 year old. Were you and angry with God? I questioned God. I absolutely questioned God. And I, I really thought that I'd wasted two years of my life. I, I kind of said, you know, what what is the point of that? I didn't understand. I, I really questioned why God would have put me through that in a way, because I saw it as a total waste because I hadn't achieved what I wanted to achieve. And it took, you know, it actually took my coach to pick me back up at that point and and say, look, you've got other things that you can do this year. Um, you know, you've you've reached a good standard. You've trained hard. You've just not quite gotten to where you wanted to. And I had the under 23 world championships that year and also Henry Royal Regatta, which is a big event in the rowing world. And I actually did those events that summer and was a spare in Sydney instead. And. Actually, I got to the end of that summer and I had an amazing summer. That is still one of the highlights of my rowing career, doing well, winning it in the under 23s and winning at Henley Royal Gatta. At that point in my career was just a wonderful thing to have kind of gone through and to have shared with my friends and family. And I guess it, it, it was a light bulb moment for me, really, because I, I suddenly realised that actually maybe my plans were not the best plans God had other plans and, you know, a scripture that came to mind, a passage of the Bible was trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And it was, you know, that was a it was a light bulb moment in my faith. And it was also a light bulb moment in my rowing, because actually, you know, rather than rowing two years and becoming a veterinary surgeon, I rowed for 15 years and became a prison officer. So <laughs> totally different. But interestingly, if you'd have told me at the beginning, you know, Debbie, if you step into a boat, you're going to be rowing for 15 years. <laughs> I would have said no thanks. And I wouldn't have done it. But again, God knew best. You know, he took me those small steps to put me on that journey. And the same with prison, you know, I mean, I don't I don't work in the prison service now, but I did for a, quite a time when I finished rowing. And if you'd have said to me, you're going to work in a as a prison officer, I'd have said no, thanks. Uh, mm. But actually, God knew better. It was it was an amazing um, role to to have. And so, yeah, that was a, a hugely significant moment in my. Okay, in my now I'm going to take you to the I'm going to take you to the Athens Olympics and uh, you were selected and you did pretty well, didn't you? How did you do? Yeah, so ended up in Athens and in the quad with three other girls and we ended up coming second. 
Um, so we got a silver medal at the Athens Games. So which team, which team beat you? Germany. They we, were the top. They were the top country oh, at the time. That's dreadful. That's dreadful. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> but <laughs> but, but know, nevertheless, it was a, a moment of ecstasy, wasn't it, to get a silver medal at the Olympics? It was amazing. And, you know, the Brits are great supporters. There was a sea of flags everywhere. And that was my first senior major medal. Have you got, can we see it? Yes, I do have it. I keep it in, I keep it in my Athens sock. (laughs) It's clean. It's clean. (laughs) Wow. Wonderful. Lovely. Let's see the other side. All right. Ancient Greek. Feel yes. free to translate, Roger. Yes, it means well done, Debbie. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's it's quite it's quite a heavy uh, medal, isn't it? Yeah, so they're solid silver, so they're quite weighty. Um, yeah, so very precious, very precious moment, very precious journey. I mean, it's not just the race, is it? It's the it's the years and the time that you spend training with those girls, and um, not just the race. And so from from Athens, four years later, you go to Beijing. Yeah. And um, now that was an amazing time. But just talk us through what happened, will you please? Yeah. So, well, we were one of the absolute favourites in Beijing. Um, To that point, Great Britain had never won a, a gold medal in the women's rowing. And we were current world champions. So we were world champions in 2007, in 2006. And uh, I wasn't in the boat in 2005, but the the boat was world champion in 2005 with those girls in. So we we went in with real expectations. That whole four year cycle, we had like gold medal mentality, you know, gold medal training, gold medal eating, gold medal recovery, gold medal everything. You know, it was that was in our sights. You know, we'd won the silver and we wanted to become world champ world um, olympic champions in in the beijing games and we had a great race we set off really well uh we led the race and we were a very strong crew and we actually led the race for about six minutes and uh the race was about six minutes and 17 seconds and just got overtaken in the final stages by the the home crew the chinese crew uh mm-hmm. Yeah, even even thinking about that. Well, I've seen I've seen the film footage of that. I'm sure they put an outboard motor on at the last moment because they seemed to (laughs) just suddenly shoot ahead, didn't they? Yeah. You got the silver again, Mm. but this time instead of ecstasy, tremendous disappointment. Yeah, very very different experience. Um, We'd had such expectations. You know, the minute we crossed that line, we were just absolutely gutted. Uh, you know, it shows on our faces and, you know, we were crying in our interview, you know, we were crying on the medal podium and, you know, I always say to people, oh, we need to get those photos redone because it looks terrible. <laughs> we just look so miserable. And, and, you know, winning a silver medal is an amazing thing. But at the time, you know, no words could console us. We were absolutely gutted. Um, that was, that was a hard, hard time. Yeah. Have you got the medal from Beijing? I have. I have. There you go. So it's the same design on the front, but then different on the back. It's got Chinese jade in the back. That's beautiful. Amazing. (laughs) Presumably, you really, really treasured these medals. You'd you'd never dream of losing one, would you? 
Roger, you're such a tease. I uh, I did lose my um, my Beijing medal. Um, I mean, I do lots of different events and I've been handing it out and we've been doing some town um, regattas on the rowing machines. And I don't know what happened. I just I started with the two and I, I ended with one. So um, the um, British Olympic uh, Association were very were kind enough to, to have another one um, commissioned and made for me, which is great. Mm, well, Muhammad Ali lost his as well, didn't he? So uh, <laughs> there you are. You're in good I'm in good company. Yeah, you are. The um, so so here we are. We've got two medals, and one, no doubt, you were able at the end of the race to go and thank God for a tremendous silver medal. The mm. second time, how did you pray when it was only a silver the second time? Yeah, it was a tough time. Um, you know, actually, as Everyone in my boat just experienced that quite differently. Like we were all obviously gutted to start with. But, you know, by that point, I'd I'd been a Christian for oh, my maths. I need to get my maths, my maths in my head. Um, I'd been a Christian for about 12, 13 years. And, you know, I think I had come to a place where I knew that, you know, just because I was a Christian doesn't mean that life is always rosy and everything always goes your way. And at that point, I'd already experienced uh, quite a few ups and downs within the rowing world. And, you know, for me, I I just prayed that I, well, I just remember thinking, you know, it's, it's, it's fine in terms of, you know, it doesn't affect how my family see me. It doesn't affect how God sees me. You know, and I just wanted to enjoy the rest of the games. You know, I really, really wanted to enjoy the rest of the games with my teammates and uh, to appreciate being there because it would have been very easy just to have withdrawn from that and been kind of stuck a bit in a hole of feeling disappointed. Uh, but, you know, for me, you know, it comes back to identity. You know, where does your identity lie? Because in the sports world, it is it's natural and it's very easy for your identity to be in your results. So as an athlete, if you're winning, you can feel like you're winning in life and that you're, you know, that you're that you're where you're supposed to be, that you're great and that everything's going well. And then if you're losing or if you get injured, then you can feel like you're a failure. Um, and that's natural to feel that way because you put all your energies into it and you know everything is focused upon those results but it doesn't make logical sense does it because you know we can go from hero to zero in the sports world overnight in a win or a loss or an injury so you know for me it was really important that I remembered where my identity lay you know that my value and worth is in the fact that I'm a child of God and actually that he makes life and life is precious so for me that was the unchanging stability within my rowing world of course gutted when we don't do well and I have the ups and downs of emotions and that's right and that's normal um mm. but it didn't affect who I thought I was um mm. and also I trusted that God had my life in his hands and that doesn't always mean winning um mm. that's just life in sports someone goes faster on the day and and they win so for me my faith was a huge stability at that time um doesn't mean that I didn't feel the disappointment but I certainly didn't stay there or um end up really stuck mm. um were, were you I'm, I'm sure you are now but were you known as a christian in the sort of throwing, uh, rowing fraternity 
Yeah. So actually, when I first was a junior athlete, um, I kind of came bursting onto the scene because I had a really strong rowing machine um, score. And I got interviewed for the National Rowing Magazine by a guy called James Cracknell, who was one of the, the top rowers at the time. And he'd asked me lots of questions, you know, where my favourite place to row was and all the normal kind of rowing questions. But he also asked me what I did in my spare time. And so I'd mentioned that I went to church, that I was a Christian and uh, that I would sometimes be involved in a home group and or a church group in the middle of the week as well. Not thinking anything of it, really, assuming that he wouldn't even mention it. And then it got mentioned in this article that went out to every single row in the country. And. I mean, you wouldn't know it now, but when I was a junior, I was very quiet. You know, I wouldn't really chat that <laughs> no, much with people. Now I could chat forever. I could chat for Britain. But uh, I was a very quiet um, young girl. And actually, I was really nervous about the fact that suddenly everyone thought, um, knew that I was a, a Christian because they'd read this article. But actually, it was an amazing blessing. Uh, it produced many conversations and people asking me about it or questioning about it and you know, obviously it came with lots of banter as well, being in the sports world. Um, you know, there was a lot of um, Debbie's in our boat today. That means God's on our side kind of jokes. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it was it was amazing to then be able to just walk in in that because I think it's an amazing opportunity to be able to share my faith. Mm. And, you know, it's 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 the most amazing thing. It's the best thing that I've ever chosen made the decision about and to do um, to become a Christian. So it was just great to have those natural opportunities to share with people because they knew I was a Christian. Now, Debbie, let's come on to the London Olympics. But before before we talk about that particular, you know, fortnight's period, you were selected. I don't know why or how, but you were selected to carry an Olympic torch. Yes, I was. So that was how did that come apart um, yeah, well, the British rowing team actually nominated me um, to carry a torch. Um, I do. I do, used to do lots of schools work and charity work. And um, that's why they, they nominated me to, to carry one. And it was amazing. It was an incredible experience. I mean, it was the rainiest, windiest day. It was actually uh, in Morecambe um, on the other side, Roger, on the other side. I know, Lancashire, if you can go to Lancashire, it's going to rain, it will. <laughs> but, you know, thousands of people, you know, were lining the streets. It was it was amazing. And, you know, I mean, you don't get to run for very far. It was about 600 metres. So I ran as physically slowly as I possibly could, <laughs> you know, zigzagging, high-fiving all the kids. It was a great day. And have you uh, have you got the torch? I do. I do have that on hand. Oh, whoops. So oh. it's got the London emblem on the front. And then it's got three sides to represent the three times that London had held the games. Yeah. And it's got 8,000 holes as well to represent uh, the 8,000 miles that the torch travelled. And also, I think, 8,000 people carried a torch. So lots of significance in it. And I think there's a dent in yours, isn't there? It's a superhuman handhold. No, that's not true. Um, I can be a bit of a muppet. I actually shut it in my car door twice. So it's it's got my mark on it. It has indeed. All right. I don't suppose you, you could take it for granted that you'd be chosen again, third time to um, to row for the uh, for the British team in the Olympics. So was it touch and go as to whether you row in London? It was touch and go. Um, 
I mean, every year you have to get reselected anyway. So, I mean, my mum my and dad, when I tell them I'm selected, they always say, well, of course you have been. You were in the team last year. But you know, it doesn't work like that. You have to be on form each year. And actually, I had a really tricky year and a really tough year because I had a back injury. Um, and then that kind of kind of made my body just a bit stiff. And then that meant that I ended up cracking my rib. So I was selected and then... They didn't know 10 weeks before the games if I was going to race because I'd had this cracked rib. Um, so it was a lot of just waiting to see how well my body could recover enough to be able to race. So, you know, to even have gotten to the London 2012 Olympics, I was extremely grateful for because it was amazing, amazing games. Mm. And you did just get into the finals, didn't you? We did. We had the race of our life in what's called the repercharge, which is like the last attempt to get into the final because we'd we'd um, not done well in our heat. Um, and so actually making the final was a, a huge um, achievement for us as a crew because, you know, we'd had such disrupted uh, training because of my injury. And there'd been a change of I didn't come into the boat until quite late as well in the season. So it was, uh, yeah, we had an amazing, amazing, probably one of my hardest races I've ever had in my 15 years in that repercharge. But the home crowd, it was amazing. I mean, it was amazing being at home games with so much noise and just being on your home turf makes a big difference. Does it really? And, and go on, tell us about the finals. How did you do? So, you know, you always start again, beginning of the final, you know, you start level, you, you kind of reset your, um, you reset yourself. You know, it didn't matter that we were one of the slowest crews. And so we set off with, again, with real uh, gusto. Um, but, you know, when you're racing, you, you're not only at the edge of your physical capacity, but you're also at the edge of your technical capacity. And actually, uh, one of the girls in our crew caught what we call a crab, which is where your blade like digs down into the water and almost like a big handbrake uh, quite early on in the race. And really, we never managed to just kind of claw that back. I mean, you know, you need to be on on top form really from start to finish in an Olympic final. So that was a it was a tough way to finish because mm. you know, as a sports person, if you can say, well, I did everything I could, you can kind of you know, you can you can you can accept that. But when you've had a race where you you don't feel like you showed your best as a crew, that's 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 even harder. <laughs> mm. So, what position did you come in the race? So we came last. We came last. Ah, oh, dear. So that was, was that humiliating? No, I mean, disappointing, you know, home Olympics, all our friends and family being able to watch. For me, that was my last games. So mm-hmm. it was, yeah, it was it was really hard, really hard. Um, but, you know, you take it as a crew. <sighs> Who know? You know, somebody sometimes makes a mistake because the crew's not rowing well enough or, you know, in a rowing boat, if you're not we call it clean water where you're not flicking up water um it, it you have to take it as a crew that's that's what rowing is all about you have to all be rowing well to to make that boat go fast and sometimes mistakes happen because the whole crew's not rowing so well hmm. did you go to rio i did i did can i count that i was i was a chief supporter <laughs> <laughs> Can I count that as a game? You've done well then. That's that's what five lots of Olympic games you've been to. Were you going to go to Tokyo? Um, I no, it's it is quite expensive to go out to games, and I now have a, a young daughter, so uh, family is priority now. I wasn't I wasn't married when I last was at um at the at the um the last game, so 
life changes as as our reading was talking about different seasons for different times and you know for me um with a family now just priorities change and, and things are different and you work for an organization called christians in sport yes i do so i work for christians in sport um, what do they do? so our kind of our mission is to reach the world of um sport for for jesus and so to be able to both um give people opportunities to to find out more about the christian faith and who jesus is but also to help those who are either seeking or that are Christians already to uh, stand firm in their faith and to grow in their faith. And they actually looked after me when I was in the rowing team. And again, the support in terms of reminding me where my identity and security lay, reminding me when no one if I was being too proud or, you know, just reminding me uh, where my gifts and abilities come from and and really pointing me to God's word for that. So it's a it's a wonderful uh, job just to be able to walk alongside other other Christians and support and encourage them really in their sport and in their faith. Now, Debbie, time's gone, but I've got to ask you this. Supposing now, obviously, I couldn't do this, but supposing I could say, Debbie, I I will give you the winning place. I'll give you a gold medal in a series of Olympic Games. And they'll be yours to treasure and the memory, the success, etc. Uh, it's yours for life. All you've got to do is renounce Jesus Christ. Just renounce following Christ. Would you do that? No, it just it wouldn't be it wouldn't be possible within myself to do that. You know, Jesus is the most important uh, person and thing that I've ever done. Uh, in the, and in light of not just day to day now, but also in light of eternity. So both now and eternity, you know, when I pass away, you know, Jesus is the most important thing you need to know. Uh, you know, I'm not going to take my medals with me when I go to heaven. And, you know, God's given me, you know, a, a wonderful life to spend with him. Mm. Are, are you still involved in rowing? Do you still row? Yeah, well, actually, I'm rowing once a week at the moment uh, just to, to I love being on the water. And I, you know, through the ups and downs, I, I still absolutely love my sport. And it's great to still be involved. Uh, help down at my rowing club as well at Leander, just supporting the girls in any way that that's possible and uh, just encouraging them and being an ear to listen. Um, and also with the with the British rowing team, just being being someone who can be around if if athletes have questions. So it's it's, it's great to still be involved and to be able to give back at the moment while I while I'm still in this area. And you've got which is Henley, isn't it? But you've got a daughter. At what age will you put her in a boat with you? <laughs> well, when my husband lets me, she's not allowed on the river yet. She's too young. She's only <laughs> uh, five and a half months. I I bought her like a, a rubber ring, but he's still not keen for her to be on the river yet. <laughs> <laughs> Would you love her to be a rower as well? Oh, I think, I mean, I've absolutely loved the sport. You know, I will, I'll let her do whatever she ends up loving doing. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's, it's great to give um, youngsters opportunity to do lots of different sports and just to use their energy up and to, to learn skills. And then they'll find their own, their own giftings and uh, the path of whatever God's placing in front of them. Great. Well, Debbie, thank you very much. We'll come back to you in the quarter of an hour or so. And uh, now, if anybody has any questions, if we could have the screen share up again, please, um, please do text them. Um, here comes the number 07946852071. Or you can use Slido, www.slido.com. And then you need the code 7276. 
two. But any questions to Debbie at all, this is your moment to speak to an Olympian. And uh, I think Phyllis will be posing them. I just want to apologise. I don't know whether is Tony there. We can go back just... to Tony now. Let's go back to Tony. Tony. Just for okay. Let... Tony, are Hi, you going to do the talk now instead of me? Uh, well, I'm tempted to, uh, Roger. Uh, but somebody's, somebody stopped my video now as well. I don't know what's going on. Co-host has stopped your video. Um, is this some sort of, some kind of punishment? What is going on? Possibly. <laughs> well, um, let me apologize to everybody because it certainly wasn't the plan that I should be doing everything, but, uh, um, um no, but I think, um, I, I think you did a great job, Roger, as, uh, as my understudy. You wouldn't and, dare uh, say anything else, I know. <laughs> yeah, but you did a really good job. Um, we'll perhaps have uh, Tony in a couple of weeks interviewing, but uh, sorry about that, Tony, but I had to come in because it was... No, no, you're absolutely right. Well, can, can I just confirm that the, the answer that Debbie gave to my third question was Eric Little? <laughs> it was, it was. It was, uh, that, that's all I need to know. That, I feel like my work was done. I passed, I passed. Well, well done, Debbie. I knew you would because you're from Yorkshire. Well, we're just going to have a quick look at the Bible, a quick uh, thought or two before we finish, because we always like to sort of draw things to a close. But then we'll have the questions. And I thought we'd, we'd think for a few moments about that, that book of Ecclesiastes. Hannah read from it, the very famous passage in Ecclesiastes chapter three earlier on. It's, it's only a short book with 12 chapters and the 12 chapters are quite short. It was written by Solomon and uh, it, it's an unusual book for the Bible because he's looking at the world from a position where God has been excluded. Now, of course, every other book in the Bible, there are 66 altogether, is looking at it from God's point of view. But 28 times in those 12 chapters, you get the phrase under the sun. So he's seeing everything in a sort of earthy way. In fact, he uses the phrase under the earth seven times. But the key word in that little book of Ecclesiastes is the word vanity. It comes 37 times altogether. Uh, and the book really is showing that the world without God cannot meet our human need. And yet over and over again in different cultures, different societies, of course, people have tried to find meaning and fulfillment without God. The, the book is really written for those who feel that they've found success, but somehow meaning and purpose has been elusive. Now, it was written by Solomon, King Solomon, um, who was the third king of Israel. Uh, he was the son of King David, the greatest king of Israel. He reigned in a time of more or less perpetual peace. There were some skirmishes at the end of his, his reign, but more or less he, he was reigning in a time of peace. He was respected throughout the world. Of course, famously, the Queen of Sheba, Yemen, probably came to visit him. He had incredible wealth and luxury, every pleasure that he could dream of, he, 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 he could have. He was the king. He had 1,000 wives. Can you believe that? Um, and he had tremendous wisdom, not particularly to control his own life, but certainly to rule in the nation. And um, his, his wisdom was turned into making songs and proverbs. He had the power to express with clear words his thoughts. And yet the interesting thing is that Solomon, too, was finding that despite everything that he'd got without God, it was just meaningless. Again, vanity. Life, he felt, was like a mist or a smoke or a, a Middle Eastern mirage. And, and you live your life and then there's no remainder. There's no memory of what you've done. And 
it's interesting in those 12 chapters, he ponders the sort of unfairness of life. And sometimes that gets to us, doesn't it? And it was this thought that really that that sort of linked me to what um, what Debbie had been sharing, because things happen to us over which we have no control. In fact, the whole pandemic and the lockdown is is one of those um, as evidence. The totally unexpected comes our way. Uh, we seem so often to be at the mercy of just time and chance. One moment we're like fish swimming in the sea and the next moment we're caught in a net it's interesting there's a little passage in the bible where it talks about five areas of um of yeah unpredictability let me read it it's from chapter 9 verses 11 and 12 we read the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong nor bread to the wise nor riches to men of understanding nor favor to men of skill but time and chance happen to them all for man also does not know his time, like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare. So the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. And, and now those couple of verses, uh, he talks about the unpredictability of a race. And we thought about that tonight of war, of just our living, our livelihood of riches and of favour. And he's really saying no matter what one's talents are, because of events which are beyond human control, no one ever has a sure grip on success. And, and sport, I think, provides good illustrations and examples of this uncertainty and unfairness. Sometimes uh, the wrong that comes our way is because of human wrong. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I'm not into rowing. I've got to be honest. Sorry, Debbie. But uh, if I had a sport and I'm not a great sports lover, full stop. But if I had a sport, it would be cricket. Uh, famously in the Australia versus New Zealand uh, World Series in Melbourne in 1981, it was the final. And New Zealand needed six runs from the final ball just to get a draw. So what happened? The Australian bowler bowled underarm and rolled it. 22 yards so there was no way there could be a six Richie Benno later on said it was one of the most disgraceful moments in the history of cricket and the rules were changed in world cricket the next day but nevertheless because of human wrongness there was unfairness sometimes it's not the wrongness of humanity it's it's the weakness of humanity I'm sure many of you are familiar with this story, which you can see on YouTube, where Derek Redmond in the Barcelona Olympics in 1992, he was in the 400 meter semi-final race and he pulled his hamstring. He hobbled to a halt and then he collapsed in pain. Stretch bearers ran out. But Redmond got up and hobbled on. And you might recall that his father jumped on the track, somehow getting past all the security. And together they completed the race. It was a wonderful moment in the Olympics. But it was human weakness that led to that uh, unpredictable event. And I suppose it was just the same for for. Um, for Debbie, and especially the Olympic, Olymp uh, the, the London Olympics, but also the Beijing ones earlier, things just happen. Is it all just random? And Solomon answers, no, it is not. And just a, a verse or two later in chapter nine of Ecclesiastes, he has this lovely little incident. I, I would want to know more. But this is what he said. This wisdom I have also seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, 
and a great king came against it, besieged it and built great snares around it. Now, now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Um, delivered the city. Yes, and uh, yet no one remembered that same poor man. Then I said, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Now, I'm not sure what Solomon had in mind. One would love to know the incident. But I'll tell you, when I read that, I can't help but think of, of Jesus. Do you remember once Jesus stood up to a crowd and he said, whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again? And he appealed to the crowd to come and take living water from him. He did the same with a woman that he met uh, at a well in um, a Samaritan woman in Sychar. Now, basically, that sentence, whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. It's the summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. You see, Solomon saw a small city in which were a few people. Well, makes me think of our tiny little planet okay eight billion of us but a tiny planet in the midst of this vast vast universe and then solomon saw that the city was besieged by a powerful enemy hasn't that happened to our world hasn't something gone radically wrong with wars and rumors of war with famine and starvation and injustice with 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 greed and selfishness with lust and pride and hatred and division, something's gone wrong. The city, as it were, has been besieged. But then Solomon saw a poor, wise man. And I can't help but think of, of Jesus, one man who was going to bring deliverance. He was raised in obscurity, just in a northern town in Nazareth, and um, began his ministry at the age of 30. Were the leaders of the nation coming and listening to him? Were, were, were the religious leaders interested in him? No, they just plotted against him. And he had nothing when he wanted to illustrate a point. He, he couldn't dig into his pocket and pull out a coin. He asked for somebody to lend him a penny. He rode to Jerusalem on a borrowed ass, a borrowed donkey. He was buried even in a borrowed tomb. Wasn't he? he had nothing. He said, you know, foxes have their holes, birds of the air have their nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. This poor man, as far as we know, he never wrote anything except in the dust of the ground. He he never composed a song, did he? And yet this man was going to change the world and the history of our planet. Why? Because by his wisdom, that, that's what Solomon saw. A man saved the city by his wisdom, by his wisdom, Jesus, who is God incarnate, God clothed in humanity, was going to go to a place of suffering and, and immense cruelty and hang in the most excruciating of deaths, painful not only in his body, but in his emotions, in his mind, as people just forsook him and fled like frightened sheep. But as he hung on that cross, he, as the God-man, was going to take on himself all the rottenness, the rebellion, the sin, the injustice of the world, all the godlessness of which we're all guilty in thought and word and deed, the sin which cuts us off from God, which would keep us out of heaven, which, to be honest, would condemn us to hell. God took and laid on Jesus 
What an act of wisdom. You can look at it and think, oh, this is this is crazy. This is foolishness. No, this was God's great plan. He would enter into the arena of humanity and he would take on himself the sin of the world from the beginning of time to the end of time, from all humanity laid on him. One man saved the city by his wisdom. One saviour has provided a way whereby anyone, everyone who looks to the Lord Jesus can find forgiveness and new life. It's interesting, Solomon said, and this man was forgotten. And I wonder if that's true of you. The Jesus who loved us and who died for us and was buried and rose from the dead. Could it be you're just living and you're sort of trying to find meaning in life without God? Trying to, as it were, disprove what Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes. And yet the truth is written there. The race is not to the swift. It's interesting. Some of the most overlooked people in the world, some of the humblest people, the, 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 the weakest of people are the people who have an experience of God that lasts not only through life, but will take them through death and into eternity. The world may forget them as they as it's tried to forget the saviour, but God never does. Do you know, heaven is not a reward. The race is not to the swift. It's not the good go up and the bad go down. That's never what the Bible teaches. Heaven is a gift which Jesus purchased and he offers to us. Heaven is for those who received it. Or if you want, heaven is for those who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. Now, at the very end, Tony is going to conclude. We will see Tony again. And he's going to close with a prayer that you could pray if you would ask Jesus Christ to become your Lord and Saviour. And the most important thing to do in life and, of course, for eternity is to make sure you're right with God. And if you've never asked Christ to forgive you and live within you, there is a time to be born. Yes, but there is a time to be born again, to be converted, to trust Christ. And that time is always now. God does not promise us tomorrow, but he does say today, if you will hear my voice, don't harden your heart. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Well, we're going to have some questions now. But after that, when Tony prays, I urge you to pray with him to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Roger, thank you so much. Yeah, I, I will indeed uh, be praying at the end. And uh, thank you for all your hard work tonight, Roger, particularly stepping in for me. Uh, but if you have any questions, uh, I don't know if, David, you can just put the slide up again, just very, very quickly. One last time. Uh, if, if any questions have come to your mind that you'd like to ask either Debbie or Roger, uh, there you can via the text or via Slido. I'm not going to read out the numbers again for sake of time, but we're going to go straight over to Phyllis. And uh, Phyllis, if you could uh, lead us off with the questions, please. Thank you very much. Uh, a moment there, all for Debbie. Sorry about that. Um, and I think maybe you've answered this, but maybe you could highlight it. Which of your sporting moments do you treasure most? That's a very good question. Um, I'm afraid I can't boil it down to one moment. Uh, there's three, but I think, you know, for me, Henry Roll Regatta, um, winning there was in my single was 
an amazing experience. People, you know, the people are, who are spectators are so close to the bank, you can hear your name being called the whole way up the course, which was incredible. That was really cool. Um, my first world championships in 2007, first world championship gold, because listening to your national anthem as you stand there is, is pretty incredible. And then my, my Athens medal, um, in, yeah, in 2004 with, uh, three of the girls who are now still three of my best friends and they're, they're just brilliant. We, we keep in close contact and I see them every year. If I had to choose between the three, I'd probably choose my Athens medal. And that is, um, yeah, definitely one of the, one of the best kind of sporting achievements, I, I would say. Right. These medal ceremonies are very tearful for everybody, I think. <laughs> Earlier on when you're training, you mentioned about being involved in sport 24-7. So as a Christian, did you find it hard to be involved 24-7 when Sunday was just the same as any other day? Did you miss teaching and fellowship and church? Yeah, great question. Um, my coach was actually amazingly um adaptable when I when I was first being coached by him when being coached by Mark Banks he knew that I was a Christian uh, he knew that that was something that was hugely significant to me and central in my life he even came to my my baptism and he allowed me to on a Sunday do the first session with everyone else and then I was allowed to go back to church and finish my second session another time obviously again came with lots of banter with all the athletes saying oh you know Debbie says she's going to church just getting off sessions um, so actually within um, my club setup, there was there was some flexibility for me there, which was great. Um, I was also part of along the way. I was always part of churches who um, really understood that this is where God had placed me. And, and I wasn't judged for not being able to be at church every Sunday. Of course, if I was abroad on training camps, I was not able to be there. And um, they would be praying for me when I was away and they would they would keep in contact. And, you know, if you belong to a good church, you, you, you that is your church family. And it's not just the Sundays that um, you kind of like are interacting with people. Um, obviously, these days you can you can catch up on sermons and things as well. But, you know, being a Christian is really about your personal relationship with Jesus. And of course, like being able to go to church and have fellowship with others is hugely encouraging and, and, um, you know, to have others around you is really important. And again, that's where Christians in sport help me out a lot by meeting with me regularly to encourage me and to bring me back to the Bible. So there were, there were always things that I could um, continue with. Um, I would do my own Bible readings when I was on training camps. And again, that provided amazing opportunities for people to ask me why I was getting up earlier. <laughs> even earlier to to read my Bible and and would like they would like to flick through my devotional book often in the in the in the rooms as well. So um, it, it you know, it was hard sometimes because I was away a lot, but um, I had lots of great Christian friends encouraging me. Thank you very much. And um, you mentioned about the, the disappointment at Beijing. Is there a support network within the Olympic regime that would get alongside competitors when they face those sort of disappointments? Um, there wasn't so much then, but there certainly is now. Um, there's a lot more support within sport in general um, and in all different in all sports, in all disciplines um, to help athletes um, coping with their ups and downs and their disappointments, particularly and injuries as well. Actually, injuries is one of the most uh, tough times because that's a real you kind of come to a roadblock and you can't do anything about being injured. And so actually there is a lot of support now. I think I would say at the time in Beijing, 
It was more a case of your, you know, your close knit crew and uh, coach would be supporting each other. But also you would make, you know, you're traveling the world with your your rowing team and you're training with the same people day in, day out. So you do form um, great friendships and um, it's a very supportive environment in terms of the friendships you build being there. Thank you. Um, what advice would you give to a young person who is a Christian and doing well at sport? Hmm. I would say that always remember to be thankful for your sport uh, and not see it as something that you you must have or you should have or that you're owed. But actually, just be really thankful for it and see it as a as a gift from God. Uh, want to honour Him within it, and that you know that is a challenge. You know, when it comes to being competitive, because actually in high level sports, um, you have to be competitive. You have to want to do well and want to win. And uh, but you also have to be a, a team player. And there's yeah, there's lots of ways in which um, being a Christian is 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 a huge uh, help, really, within sport and like looking out for others and, and that kind of thing. But I would say, you know, don't ever lose the enjoyment of your sport as sport gets more and more intense it can sometimes become not as fun because the focus is on are you improving are you winning and that can really bind you down really and really oppress you if that becomes your only focus so I would say work hard as if working for the Lord and uh, with the abilities that you have but always enjoy it and also always look out for others around you because sport is is a wonderful way of just yeah building friendships and investing in in people as well as well as your own sporting life so what lessons have you learned from rowing which has helped you in your christian life Mm. great question um well you know in rowing and rowing has been an equally a, a challenge in my christian christian walk because you know i remember um there were times and you know, there are, I think there are times as a Christian where sometimes you feel close to God and sometimes you feel far away from God. But it doesn't mean that he's not there. Often it's just that we're not looking at him or we're just we're getting distracted by life or by worries and cares. Um, and I think for me, one of the big challenges for my faith was that um, when I, you know, when I there's often times where I, I want to come back to being more disciplined and more dedicated in reading my Bible in the mornings, because I know that's an amazing way to start the day, best way to start the day, you know, in God's word and being reminded that he is with you in the day. And, you know, is there for you to lean on, to thank and, and all those things and give the day to. But for me, you know, I, I definitely have been through phases where I really struggled to do that, whether I'm be tired or whether I, I didn't want to get up earlier but actually, I was really challenged at one point because in rowing, which is an endurance sport, you learn to persevere, to to have endurance. You you are disciplined to get up at you know six in the morning to have your breakfast and go down to rowing. And therefore, I was very challenged that, you know, actually I needed to um, to take that discipline and and actually have that within my my Christian walk as well. Not that you. You have to. It's, it's, a, it's a tricky it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because you don't have to read your Bible. But actually, I see it as you get to. It's an amazing privilege. And so for me, you know, we always. Well, yeah, I think I think that's definitely been something persevering and endurance. But also I think it's just the life 
perspective, really. You know, rowing can be a very intense time because that is, you know, well, it's what you do for most of your day. But actually to do well in your sport, you have to have perspective. It's really important. And you learn that. And it's the same, you know, with our with our Christian walk, not to not to get bogged down in the things that we're disappointed about or sad about, but actually have the perspective that God has, which is way bigger than our our you know small paths or what we see in front of us. Actually God's perspective is so much bigger and to remember that actually He sees much more than than we do and to to trust Him with it because actually having a bigger perspective, God's perspective is is way more um makes way more sense and is a much better path to walk. So, yeah, lots of different things. I think um, I could probably think of more if I if I had some more time. But those are off the top of my head. <laughs> well, there's a question you talked about your identity. Can you explain more of what you mean by this, please? But I think maybe you've covered that in that last answer. So I'm yeah. going to go on to a question for you and for Roger. So maybe um, Roger first. Do you have a favourite verse of scripture? And Debbie, the same question. Um, yes. Can you hear me? Because I've, I've had yes. a bit of trouble. Yes. OK. Um, I love the verse that comes in Psalm 42, verse eight. And it's just five words that are not found anywhere else in that order in, in the rest of the Bible. So it's almost as if the psalmist invented uh, a new name for God. Um, and uh, it's simply uh, the, the psalmist calls God the God of my life, the God of my life. I love that phrase, uh, the God of my life. But my motto, because I'm a Christian preacher, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, where the Apostle Paul was writing. And he said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And my great passion is that people should know about the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he came into the world to die and suffer and pay for our sin. Thank you. And Debbie, your favourite verse of scripture. Um, I think I would always go back to that verse that was significant at the beginning of my faith. Um, you know, with trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths um, because, you know, God's path and God's way with him um, is better than any other path, any other way uh, that we could possibly come up with ourselves. And, um, you know, though for me, that is the that is the, you know, one of being, being the most significant verse in my life, because things don't always go smoothly and we just need to fall back onto God and trust him and remember that as a Christian, our life is in his hands. And again, you know, that touches a bit on the, the question before when in identity, you know, we're all trying to form an identity, whoever you are, whether it's, you know, trying to, to do that through work or trying to work out how to be happy as such or, you know, what you want in your life. Um, but none of that is stable. You know, if we build our who we are and our value and worth on what we think about ourselves, <laughs> that's up and down. Um, if we build that on what other people think about us, that's up and down. If we build it on success, that's up and down. And uh, we can only build our worth and value and um, identity on on the truth, which is God. And um, as a Christian, we know that we're stable in him as his children. Great. On that point, we'll go back to Tony. Thank you so much, Debbie. And thank you, Roger. 
Yeah, thank you so much, Debbie and Roger. And um, it's been very sort of apparent tonight that um, they've been talking about the same thing, that uh, life needs to be built on something solid, something firm, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I'm going to pray. And um, if, uh, as Roger mentioned, if any of you tonight would, would like to accept the Lord Jesus into your life, um, that he would come into your life, make the difference, forgive you of your sin, and, uh, and give you a new life that you might be born again, start afresh with him, um, then just uh, as I just pray this prayer, make it your own as well. So let's just pray together, shall we? Father God, we thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness and your love. I thank you, Lord, that you showed your love for us, that while we were still sinners, you sent your son Jesus to die for us. Father, I thank you that you... Um, and not waiting for us to be good, to get things right before we can come to you. You want us to come to you just as we are. But you love us so much that you don't want us to remain as we are. So, Lord, if uh, tonight we don't know you, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to uh, just uh, come before you and uh, say we're sorry for our sinfulness. Uh, we confess our need of you. We pray that we put our faith and our hope in the one who died on the cross of Calvary for us. And in putting our trust and our hope and our faith in him, he won't disappoint us. That we'll be forgiven of our sin. That we'll start anew. And that we'll have an assurance of salvation. And a peace which passes all understanding in our lives. We thank you for Debbie. Thank you for Roger. Thank you for their words tonight. But Lord, may there be more than words to us. May there be something we experience in our lives too. So, Father, help us to come to you, knowing that you'll never turn us away. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed interviewing Debbie tonight. It was hard work, um, but it was, uh, it was great. Debbie, may the Lord bless you in, in all that you're doing in this new season of your life uh, with your little one. It won't be long before uh, she's out on the water, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Might not be, be with your husband's support, but it won't be long. <laughs> and, uh, and Roger, thank you for stepping in and, uh, and sharing a, a wonderful message again with us this evening. If you want to know more about um, the Lord Jesus, get in touch with us. Reallives.net is the place to go. But uh, thank you for joining with us and uh, have a blessed Lord's Day tomorrow. Thank you very much. Take care. See you later.